the IRS has a special fund called the Cheaters Account. That's encouraging right there. They have an account set up for people who feel guilty on their taxes so they can send money anonymously. And there's a story about a man who has sent his money anonymously. He sent a money order for $10,000. And this is the note that he put into with the money uh, order. I've been cheating on my taxes for years and I feel guilty. I can't sleep at night. In close, please find a money order for $10,000. P.S. If I can't sleep, I'll send the rest. <laughs> We laugh at that. But here's the thought that comes with that this morning. Proverbs 28, verse 1, the first part of that verse says, The wicked flee when no one pursues. The wicked flee when no one pursues. Think about it. We live in a culture where we're trying to outrun our conscience when we've done things we shouldn't do. There's the girl who's had a procedure, but she can't tell her parents about it. There's the husband who's involved in a secret relationship that he's afraid to tell his wife about. There's a woman who wrestles with the same sex attraction and she can't talk to her Sunday school teacher. There's the business person wasting time at work and is afraid to tell their boss. There's the students who try to leave drugs and they're afraid to tell their teacher. And the list goes on and on and on. There are things that we do and things that take place in our own life and it causes us to feel guilty about it. And guilt is like acid that eats away at our conscience, drip by drip. And here's the thing, and here's the assurance, we can't outrun guilt when we just stop the drip. There comes a point where every one of us can make a choice when we face a mountain of guilt. We can choose to ignore the guilt we wrestle with, or we can take it head on and repent and enjoy freedom that comes from a clear conscience. This morning in our series, Move the Mountain, we're going to learn about moving from guilt to repentance. Moving from guilt to repentance. And I know you've already opened your bulletin and you see the outline, you already came. But here's the thing, church. I wrestled with this message and I tried to find a stopping point. I honestly pray about, okay, God, where can I stop and say, Here's part one, we can pick up next week part two. But because of everything we're going to talk about this morning, we've got to lay it all out there. We can't just pause and hit the button, and we'll come back to the next week. So I encourage you to stay with me as we work through this this morning. As we move from the mountain of guilt to repentance, here's the first thought in your outline this morning. Guilt is a mountain that blocks our path to repentance and a clear conscience. Guilt is that mountain that blocks us. It stops us in our tracks because of the things we have done, the things we have said, the things we have thought about, the things we have contemplated. Instead, this mountain is stopping me from experiencing true repentance because of the guilt I am feeling about whatever you want to put in the life there. Because we all experience guilt in some way or form. This morning, as we start our time together, I want to share with you, the Scripture says there are two types of guilt. Scripture specifically tells us there are two types of guilt. We understand that all stand guilty before God's judgment before we come to faith in Christ Jesus. Everyone stands condemned and stands in front of a Holy Father. But here's the differences. The first type of guilt is called judicial guilt. Guilt. Judicial guilt. And here's the, here's the thought. God has already established the rules. God has already established what is right and what is wrong. And He is the one that is in control of all things. He's the one that says whether it's good or bad according to His opinion. His standard rather than my opinion. Because my opinion doesn't matter what I think about things. I can think of something being immoral or moral. But if it doesn't measure with God's standards, it doesn't count. But there's a judicial guilt that we all have to worry about it because we all stand before a Holy Father who loves us and cares for us. And if we don't submit to His standards, then we fall short of His glory. Because it's His standards He judges, not my standards. 
Here's a passage of scripture for you. First Peter chapter 1, verse 16. God simply says, Be holy, for I am holy. That is the measuring standard. That's the standard. Be holy, for I am holy. Because here's what happens. One sin is all it takes to be declared guilty by God. One sin is all it takes to be declared guilty by God. One. And you are declared guilty. But the Bible offers good news. The Bible offers hope. This judicial guilt that we all face is removed when Jesus Christ comes and dies for our sins and raises from the dead. And you and I accept that free gift of salvation. We accept that gift based on faith. For God's word says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, that judicial guilt is removed. And we now stand before a holy Father, and we are declared righteous. I love what Romans 8 1 says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. You are free from that past of what you were dealing with because you said yes to Him. We go from being guilty to not guilty by believing in Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. We live in a fallen world. And you're still going to wrestle with sin. You're still going to be tempted by sin. So here's the second type of guilt we read about in Scripture. It is called ethical guilt. Ethical guilt. This guilt refers to when the Holy Spirit shows up and the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. It's that still small voice that says, why are you doing that? It's that still small voice that says, are you sure you're doing the right thing? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And when the Holy Spirit shows up and convicts us of sin, it's kind of like him slapping us upside the head spiritually. Kind of like this. I'm going to pick the parts of the Bible that I think 
and avoid the hard stuff. That way I never have to feel guilty. There's a problem with that. I'm taking God's standard and putting it to the side and trying to measure my life and what I do based on my own measuring standard. And here's the problem. My standard may be this one in the measuring standard. For others, their standard may be like this. If I don't mess up this standard, I'm okay. But when I measure everything based on what God's Word says, it doesn't mean my life gets easier. But what it does tell me is that when I feel that guilt is because I'm disobeying God's standards, not my standards or the world's standards. So we think about guilt this morning. There are two responses to guilt. There are two responses to guilt. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 32 for just a second. Psalm 32. And I'm going to go ahead and warn you now. If you have a ribbon in your Bible, go ahead and mark Psalm 32 because we're coming back. But Psalm 32 is known as a hell psalm. It's an instruction. And when we come across these psalms in Scripture, that means God is trying to tell us something. We better pay attention to what God's Word is saying here. Psalm 32 is written by David, a man after God's own heart. But notice what David says in verses 3 and 4. I want to read the verses and then come back to them. This is David's words as he's crying out to the Holy Father. And he writes these words in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. In this psalm, in these two verses, we learn two responses to the guilt. The first response is silence. Don't say a word. Notice what, what David says. He says, while I kept silent in verse 3. For those who are dealing with guilt this morning, you think if I'm silent about it or if I'm secretive about it, no one else has to worry about it. But that mountain of guilt continues to grow and to grow and to grow to the point where the guilt you and I are experiencing because we're being silent, we cause ourselves to go into isolation. I can't talk to anybody, so I'll just deal with it myself. But Scripture says there's a danger there. We're going to get to that in a moment. Because we think we can run from it or hide from it. And we think, you know what, I don't have to face this mountain off in a different direction. But notice the second response in this scripture. The first one is silence. The second one is sorrow. Look at me at verse 4. He says, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Your hand was heavy upon me. We look at the life of David, and we can all say that David, at one point in his life, he could have said this, it is good to be the king. I am in control. God is blessing. We're doing everything we're supposed to be doing. He had everything he wanted, everything he needed, but he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner to his own conscience. He's overwhelmed by guilt. That's why he writes this song, because of the guilt he wrestles with. And in your outline, I made this statement. Guilt is accompanied by sorrow. And if not dealt with, can bring tragic consequences. Guilt is accompanied by sorrow. And if you don't deal with it, it will bring tragic consequences. If you don't believe me, let's look at the life of David this morning. And let's look at a moment when he made a choice that altered his life forever. This morning, let's look at the case of a guilty man. The case of a guilty man. By the world standards, David was a good man. He attended his father's sheep. He had protected the sheep from bears and lions. He stood in front of a giant who mocked his nation and his God. He's anointed the next king of Israel behind Saul. He serves that king for a while. And for a little while longer, he's running for his life because Saul wants to take 
in the story, there's a guy named Tony. And he's at the dance and he sees the young lady named Maria. And when he sees Maria, he can't see anything else. And here's the problem. Maria's brother is the leader of a gang. And all Tony can see is her and not think about the consequences that come from getting to know her and getting her and Because in the movie adaptation of the Broadway play, when you get to this scene, everything around Maria is blurred. There's a single light of her. That's all he's all that's all Tony can see is her. He's not thinking about what could come. He's not thinking about the consequences. He's not thinking about the danger. But imagine David for a moment. He sees Bathsheba. And everything goes downhill from there. Verses 4 through 5. He tells her to come on over. Then we see in Scripture what takes place there. Verse 4. David sent a messenger and took her. She came to him and lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I with child. Notice David's response. Now, David is the one who's, we all call him this morning. And I know that I've read this passage, I've studied this passage a number of times, and I've heard people want to say, well, what about Bathsheba? Is she guilty? Yes. But remember who David was. He's the king. She's going to tell the king no. Could she have? Yes. Should she have? Yes. But she makes a choice just like David did. But David is God's anointed. David is God's chosen man and the king of the nation. He already been warned in verse 3, don't do it. He goes ahead and does what he wants to do. And look at verse, look at the next set of verses. I want you to see this raw slide that is now coming upon David. Verses 6 through 8. Then David said to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to David, he asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and the gift of food from the king followed him. Verse 8. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Here's David's plan. How do I fix my mistake? I'll bring her husband home and her husband can lay with her and I'll be in the clear. But notice what Uriah does. Uriah sleeps by the doorpost with the other servants. And David can't understand this. And here's Uriah's reason. Jump down to verse 11. Look at verse 11 says. And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents in my lord Joab. And the servants of my lord are encamped in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah refuses to go to his house. And he is justified by this. He says the ark isn't a tent. He says the tabernacle is a tent. My commander is in the field serving you. My friends are in the field serving you in war. Why would I go to my house when my friends can't go back to their house? Why would I go home? And he makes the statement, and I hope you caught this, and you need to catch the last part of that verse. Notice what Uriah says. As you live and your soul lives, I will not do this thing. It's almost as if he's saying, listen, as long as you're a king, I'm not going to do this. As long as you live and your soul lives, I'm not doing this. But again, David is causing that rock slide to get really stronger. Jump down with me to verses 14 and 15. Your, David has a plan. David says, you know what? I can fix this myself. And notice what he does there in verse 14. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent by hand to Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat. 
retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. David said, I'll fix this. I'm going to put this man on the front lines of the worst battle and make everybody else back up. He's all by himself. Scripture says Uriah died in battle, just like David had said. And David thinks he got away with it. Look with me down at verse 27. Verse 27. When her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Look at the next part of the verse. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing displeased the Lord. So we go from the case of a guilty man to now we look at the consequences of a guilty man. The consequences of a guilty man. Listen, that is a strong statement here in Scripture that the Lord is displeased with the thing he had done. God is displeased. Now David thinks he's gotten away with it. David thinks he is in the clear because he doesn't see God's punishment immediately. He thinks, you know what? I've got this handled. Because the days go on. The weeks go on. Nine months goes on. And he sees no physical judgment from God. And David sits back and says, man, I wanted that one. God surely not going to do anything to me. It's been nine months. God surely not upset with me. God surely not mad with me. And David comes to the same conclusion. Listen to me, church. David comes to the same conclusion that you and I have come to. When God delays his discipline, we mistakenly interpret God's mercy as his tolerance of sin. When we don't think that God has to use judgment on his followers, they can go and just tolerate this one. Then that's what David is thinking. But it's ironic that David's son Solomon, in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, would write these words. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Again, listen to me very carefully this morning. It's a mistake to believe that just because God doesn't settle his accounts immediately, that he never settles them. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Remember, there are no external signs of judgment in David's eyes. He can't see anything. For nine months, nothing has happened. But God is dealing with the king internally. And David is living under this mountain of guilt that is crushing him physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Go back to Psalm 32. I told you we're going back there. Go back to Psalm 32. We talked about the two types of guilt there. And I want you to see something else in this passage of Scripture this morning. In Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. Consequences. Here's the first consequence. The physical consequence of guilt is grinding. The physical consequence of guilt is grinding. Again, look at verses 3 and 4 in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones grew all through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Scripture says that David's bones grew all because of a secret sin. He says he's in pain physically. His joints are aching. His knees are bothering him. Verse 4 says that my vitality has turned into the drought of summer. He has no stamina. He has no strength. It's almost as if he's dealing with a fever of 103 degrees. And he just physically can't do anything. David is at midlife age, whatever that is. So physically, he ought to be pretty good. But because of the sin, he 
and the physical effects of unresolved sin can range from being sluggish to weight gain to being broken down in the immune system. Your whole body can go out of whack because of sin. And when I think about the physical effects of sin on an individual, Robert Eppling comes to my mind. Robert Eppling was the space shuttle engineer. He was the man who knew all the works and all the air parts of the space shuttle program. The night before Challenger was to launch, he and his team went to NASA and said, listen, because of that freeze, the O-rings that are on the side of the rocket boosters that are propelling that spaceship upward, because those O-rings have experienced this cold snap we just happened, it may not be safe. We might need to delay the launch a little while. And Robert Evans and his team, they begged NASA to hold back a few days. They pleaded them. They showed them the research. They showed them the science. They showed them everything they could to justify their findings. But everything they said fell on deaf ears. On January 28, 1986, Robert Eppley and his team watched in horror as the rest of the nation showed challenges and lifted off and exploded on liftoff, putting all seven on board. Robert Eppley talks about dealing with the issues that came after that. He says, and I quote, he says, he never forgave himself because he didn't fight hard enough to halt that launch. And he felt like he failed that crew that flew on that shuttle. And this is the statement he makes. He said, I have been under terrible stress since the accident. I have headaches. I cry. I have bad dreams. I go into hypnotic trances daily because of the guilt and the stress of what took place that day. He was never the same. The stress that David is feeling is the same. It says his bones have grown old. They are grinding. But also the emotional consequence. We go from physical consequence. Let's talk about the emotional consequence of sin. It's groaning. Again, verse 3 says, Through my groaning all the day long. And that groaning is manifested in two ways. We groan and it leads to depression. We become depressed because we're groaning, because we're so overwhelmed by the guilt we enter into a state of depression. The opposite of that is anxiety. We are so worked up over the emotion of the guilt, we can't think straight, we can't look straight, we can't do things on a normal basis. I imagine David living in fear because he knows judgment is coming. I imagine David is losing his mind wondering when God is going to do something about the sin he's committed. So we see this decline. We see the physical consequence. We see the emotional consequence. Then there's a spiritual consequence of sin. I feel rather groveling. It's groveling. Though he doesn't use that word in Scripture I think we see it when he says that this is going on all the day long. And when he says there in verse 4, your hand was heavy upon me. And he feels that pressure. He feels that weight. It's almost as if David's head is being held down and pushed into the ground because of the guilt he's dealing with. And it's so heavy, he can't get up for air. It's so heavy, he can't contemplate what he's supposed to do next because of the weight of the sin in the hand of God upon him. And so I imagine David being on the ground, he's groveling. And I believe it leads to this thought. Unsettled guilt leads to a break in our fellowship with God. Think about it. David's position with God did not change. His relationship though did. And when sin enters, sin changes God's attitude towards believers. And sin changes our attitude towards God. And the guilt that David is experiencing is breaking the relationship he has with the Father. Even though one of the parties feels guilty, is breaking the relationship. Adam and Eve are a prime example of this. Because of their sin, remember, because of their sin, what did they do when they heard God 
presence of God because of sin. They couldn't talk to Him. They couldn't have fellowship with Him like they used to because they made the choice to eat the fruit from that tree. There's another thought. I did not put in your outline. When we're thinking about an unsettled guilt also leads to the discipline of God. Unsettled guilt, yes, it messes up our fellowship, but it also leads to being disciplined by God. Listen, God is not in the business of letting His children just run around freely messing with sin. God's going to get our attention. And God may do it in a big way, He may do it in a minor way, but God is going to get your attention. For Adam and Eve, it was instant. They bit the fruit, they knew what was going on, and God executed judgment. For David, it's nine months. Another time. Nine months. Everything's going to David doesn't understand this truth by reading God in Hebrews 12, 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. David is fixing to get judgment. David is fixing to experience the consequences of his choice to sin. We go from the case, we go from the consequence, we now need to see the confession of a guilty man. The confession of a guilty man. Take your Bibles, go back to 2 Samuel, we'll go over to chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I want to show you the confession. And we're going to dive more into the confession in just a moment with the scripture reference from the screen. But go to 2 Samuel 12. Remember, nine months have passed. The last thing we read at the end of chapter 11 was that David had married Bathsheba. Yet the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Second Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan shows up. Nathan shows up to David's house and says, Hey, David, let me tell you a story. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 12, David, the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children, and ate his own food, and drank from his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. David hears this story. And David is mad. David is upset that somebody would have the nerve to take another man's sheep to prepare when he had more than enough sheep to prepare for the stranger. David is upset. Look at verses 5 and 6. Scripture says that David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the land because he did this thing because he had no pity. And then Nathan drops the bomb. With four words, he looks at his king and says, You are that man. You are the man, David. You're the man in the story. You're the one who has done this same thing. He goes on to tell David and give him his greatest hits. David, you had done all these things. God anointed you to be king. God made you the leader of a nation. God delivered you from the hand of Saul. God helped you to feed a giant. God had done all these things, but you have despised his commandments. And you looked at another man's wife and took her to be yours. David's secret is revealed at this moment. The sin that David had been trying to hide, that rock slide has now got him 
Now, we read the effects back in Psalm 32. Psalm 32 talks about his bones, feeling old, feeling heavy the weight of his hand, feeling like he has no strength. His energy is sapped from him. But then look at verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Fortunately for you and for me, David chooses a different path. David acknowledges his sin before God. And contrary to popular belief, and I put this in your outline, I want you to be careful this morning. Repentance is not an emotion. It's an attitude that leads to action. Repentance is not an emotion. It is an attitude that leads to action. The Greek word, memento, is translated repent. It means just to change your mind, change your direction. It's making a spiritual U-turn. And at that moment, David makes that U-turn. At that moment, David acknowledges that I have sinned. Think about it. We have not heard that at all from the course of this chapter 11, chapter 12. For nine months, David hasn't said, I sinned. David never confesses until he's confronted by God's man. And David says, I'm him. And I confess my sin. And I want you to see the confession of his sin. Take the Bible turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Notice the very first verse of Psalm 51. David writes this based on what had happened between the discussion with the prophet Nathan and after the sin he committed with Bathsheba. Notice what David writes here in verse 1 of Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my David penned this song sometime after that confrontation with Nathan, after he acknowledged his sin. And he's confessing to the Lord a broken spirit. He's confessing to the Lord a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. And he realizes that no sacrifice he could make would be honored towards God. And if he writes these words, I think Psalm 28, verse 12, came to his mind and says, When the righteous rejoice, there is great glory. But when the wicked arrive, men hide themselves. That was the attitude David had before Nathan showed up. He'd been hiding his sin. But after he's confronted, he realizes that error. He realizes that it's not just a change, but has a change in his attitude. So what is the change in the attitude? Buckle up. Here we go. It's acknowledging your sin as sinful. That's what Psalm 51 is. He is acknowledging his sin as sinful. We try to cope with this mountain of guilt by minimalizing it or trying to make it manageable. But God calls things as they are. And in Psalm 51, David uses distinct, specific words to talk about what he's asking God to do. The first word is transgressions. Transgressions. He said it there in verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. Jump down to verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions. He's saying, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge where I have messed up. And in acknowledging his sin, I'm reminded of what Romans 3.10 tells me. That there is none righteous, no, not one. None of us are righteous. None of us can change ourselves. 
None of us can fix ourselves. We have to look within and see what Scripture says about our sin. So the first word in Psalm 51 that we see repeatedly is the word transgression. The second word is iniquity. We see it in verses 2, 5, and 9. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth from iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Verse 9, hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Is that inward looking? I've transgressed. I've committed these sins. But then he is specific. The third word he mentions is the word sin. We see in verses 2 through 5, we see it in verse 9, he mentions the word sin five different times. This is that universal term for wrong attitude, wrong actions, wrong doing. Listen, when you and I fall short of the glory of God, we miss the mark. We miss the bullseye because we fall short of His glory. We fall short of what He has done for us because you and I are not living up to God's standard. We're not living up to His measuring stick. We're trying to live up to our measuring stick. We're not willing to acknowledge the sin in our life. It's missing the mark. It'd be kind of like me going to the bowling alley and lining up in my lane and releasing the ball and knocking the pins in the other lane. It's not very talented, and it looks good. It's missing the mark. When you take a bow and arrow, you're trying to hit the bullseye. But you miss the mark, you miss center. And we've done that with our sin to come in our lives. And this is what David's pointing out here. He's talking about my sin, my transgression. The fourth word we see David talk about is the word evil. We see it in verse 4. He says, against you, you only I have sinned, and done this evil in your sight. It's evil. It's wrong. The fifth word he says in this passage is the word bloodshed. We see it in verse 14. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. Think about the bloodshed. What was the bloodshed when David sent Uriah to the front line? allowed to be killed in battle. That's another sin that David committed. We think that, oh wait, David just did that to the single that she that probably didn't know. He slept with another man's blood and had that man killed. He's committing sin after sin in thinking he can get away from it, get away with it. But once you acknowledge your sin, the next step is to accept responsibility. Listen, you can't make excuses and you can't blame someone else for your sin. When the Sunday paper used to put out the comics, I always liked to read Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes is a story of a little boy in a imaginary type. Calvin gets into more trouble here than he wants to admit. But there's a cartoon where Calvin is illustrating this idea that society says, I'm the victim. It's not my fault. I'm just a victim of this didn't happen. I'm not complaining. Listen to what Calvin said when he's trying to play the victim in a situation. This way he said, I put the word on the screen so you can see it with me. Nothing I do is my fault. My family is dysfunctional. And my parents don't empower me. Consequently, I am not self-actualized. My behavior is addictive, functioning in the disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I accept any responsibility for my actions. That's a lot. He's saying, not it's my fault, my parents' fault. They didn't do enough. He makes all these excuses. This is a kid. And I love what Hobbes says. This is his partner, his buddy. Hobbes makes this simple statement. One of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of ice water. David didn't have to stick his head in a bucket of ice water because Nathan threw the bucket at David. And he threw it at him to get his attention. We live in a world that says it's not my fault. I'm not to blame. We want to blame everyone else but accept the responsibility 
for the sin. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are personal psalms from David. If you go back and read those psalms, notice the number of times he says the word, I, me, mine. He's personal. Again, look at Psalm 51. Look at the first three verses. And look what Scripture says. David writes these words, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. There's no scapegoating. There's no second guessing. David is owning up to responsibility. And he understands that the first step is recognizing his guilt. And for me and for you, this is the thought. We must identify areas in our lives where we have fallen short of God's standard. You have to do that as an individual. No one can do it for you. You have to say and look at your own self and say, where have I fallen short of God's standard? Where have I fallen short of what God has wanted me to do or has called me to do? Because true repentance involves honest evaluation. And let's be honest, we don't like evaluations. Some of you have jobs where you get a yearly evaluation. You don't look forward to it. Because somebody else is making the determination on how you did this. But if we do an honest evaluation, let's look at ourselves and how do we answer that question where I have fallen short of God's glory. Take your Bible, turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Hang in with me. As I shared earlier, you can't get one without the other. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. We see these familiar words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there is any great way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The first part of that verse, search me, O God, and know my heart. If you and I are going to do it, honest evaluation of ourselves, here's what we need to go to do. We need to think about it. You need to think about your relationship with God. What does your relationship with God look like? Is it a good relationship? Are you talking to Him on a regular basis? Are you going to Him with unconfessed sin? Are there any unkept promises you made with God? You said, God, listen, if you help with this, I will do this. And God has answered that you have not responded. So what about the of God? What's the honest evaluation about that? How about your relationship with your family? There may be here some here this morning that you make restitution with parents, with siblings, with your children. What is the honest evaluation of your relationship with your family? What is the honest evaluation of your relationship, and I use the word, with your mate, your spouse? What does that relationship look like? Is there forgiveness that you need to ask for something you've done wrong? What about your relationship with others? Is there something that you're doing that you need to stop? Is there an area that you need to seek forgiveness from someone you offended? What about your relationship with yourself? What are some habits you need to stop? What are some habits that aren't very godly that you keep doing? How about your relationship with your possessions? How about an awesome evaluation of that one? What are you putting ahead of God? What things are you putting ahead of God and not giving Him your full attention? Because here's the thought. In every one of these aspects, in every one of these questions we just listed, we must make restitution where necessary. We must make restitution where necessary. If you've wronged a person, if I've wronged a person, then I need to know that person to ask for forgiveness. 
scripture shows us this very simple and plain way. You have to turn there, but I encourage you, underneath that statement you just answered, I can write down Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Because this is the greatest example of restitution. Matthew 5 and 24, 23 and 24 says this. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then and come offer your gift. Scripture, this is Jesus' word. Jesus says, listen, if you bring something to the altar and you've got something against another person, you go fix that first. Then bring your gift forward. Then present your gift to God. The greatest example of this in Scripture is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And he received more than he deserved because he was a local boy. He could ask for the tax from the Romans and add a little more to himself. But he has that encounter with Jesus. He had that conversation with Jesus. Jesus ends up in Zacchaeus' house with other tax collectors, other people, and there's this moment when it's not an emotional change, it's an attitude change. And you see it in Luke 19, verse 8. And it says that Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. This action was a sign of genuine repentance. For you and me to know that we must turn away from known sin. That's no longer an experience true repentance. We have to turn away from known sin. And remember, the word repent carries a chain, a turn going a different direction. David asked for forgiveness. Psalm 51 verse 10 says, Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. David realized that his way of thinking had led him to the situation he was in. And David had to learn that he had to go in repentance and go before a holy Father. You and I are going to sin. We're going to wrestle with sin against ourselves, against others. But all sin is against God. But if you and I come to God with a broken, contrite heart, a broken spirit, and confess our sin, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This brings me to the good news. Because let's be honest, it's all been bad at this point. I told somebody earlier in the week that this message that I've been working on has been heavy because it's God's truth. You can't sugarcoat it. You can't skip it. But this morning I want to remind you that there is good news. There is good news for us when we wrestle with sin. Then once we get it back, that we get it and turn it over to God, let Him do it. God does some amazing things. Go back to Psalm 51 for the last time. Psalm 51. Notice what David says here. Psalm 51 is this chapter for all of us who struggle with sin. All of us who struggle on a daily basis. We can turn to Psalm 51 and we are getting some reminders of what happens when we give that sin to God and let Him deal with it. When we acknowledge the guilt and ask for repentance, which leads to a clear conscience, but also a blessedness. In Psalm 51, I gave you a list of things that David prayed for, but here's what also David tells us in this psalm. The first is this, that God removes our sins. God removes our sins. We see it in verse 2, we see it in verse 7, we see it in verse 9. Look at the words, he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. 
Wash me and ice me whiter than snow. And then he says, hide your face in verse 9 from my sin and blot out my iniquities. Three images he uses for God to remove sin. He washes us. He uses the word of a hesitant of a tree that absorbs liquid like a sponge. And he also has blotting out the sin, removing it. So God removes sin. But then also notice this. God reinstates our joy. God reinstates our joy. Verse 8. Make me hear joy and gladness that my bones may have. You have broken may rejoice. Remember, he talked about his bones growing old back in Psalm 32. Now he says here in Psalm 51, make my bones come alive with joy. Look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Bring the joy back to me. God removes our sin. God reinstates our joy. God revives our fellowship. God revives our fellowship. Verse 11. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Remember in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did indwell in the Remember, you and I are recipients of the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But notice what David prays here in that verse. He says, do not, do not remove your spirit from me, verse 11. Do not take it away from me. Because when the believer repents, the Holy Spirit is the one who comforts us. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides us and leads us. Here's the next thought. God redeploys our lives. God redeploys our lives. Verse 10, create me a clean heart of God and you will that spirit within me. Verse 12, restore the joy of my salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. David is asking God to refocus his life. God, make your priorities my priorities. Make your ways my ways. Remove the sin, sin. Restore the joy of my salvation. Bring me back into a right relationship with you. Because what pleases the Lord always leads to holiness and blessedness. What pleases the Lord always leads to holiness and blessedness. This morning, if you want to conquer a mountain of guilt, if you want to get over this mountain, it begins by repenting of your sins. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said this. When we deal seriously with our sin, God will deal gently with us. When we hate what the Lord hates, He will soon make an end of it to our joy and our peace. When we hate sin the way God hates it, He restores the joy of our heart and soul. Every head down and every eye closed. This morning, this morning, some of you may be struggling with guilt in some way, shape, or form. And this guilt is eating away from the inside out. This guilt is messing with relationships, with family, with friends, with work. And we all wrestle with guilt. We all stand in front of this mountain with guilt overwhelming us. Sometimes we think that we've gotten away with it. But Scripture says that God will deal with it. But what I love about Scripture is that we see the bad, but there's always good news that comes back to does David pay for his sin? Yes. But David still called a man after God in the heart. But David had to acknowledge the repent of his sin. That's why he writes it for the world to see in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. That is his declaration to the world that I am a sinner. I have done this evil before a holy God. Yet David in confessing his sin, writes those words, creating me a clean heart of God, renew a steadfast spirit in me. 
this morning, whatever guilt you're dealing with, you can lay it at the foot of the cross. Because you have a Savior who loved you enough to die for your sins. That's why as a believer, you don't face God's judicial will. Every one of us has to stand for a whole father. He's going to open the book. Every name is in that book. Every name in our The Revelation says we open another book. It has the names of those that are written in the land of God. The names of those who have peace and reward and safety. Does that make you perfect? No. Not by the time. What that means is that the Holy Father loves you. He's waiting for you to confess the sin you're struggling with.